Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast as we continue our discussion on uh, the subject of fossil fuels and climate change. My guest today is Christopher Mbanefo. Christopher and I serve on the Africa chapter of uh, the Club of Rome. Otherwise, Christopher is an entrepreneur and innovator and a professional pilot. Christopher is also an aerospace engineer with work experience with leading corporations in the United States, the EU, and Africa. Christopher is an advocate for sustainable growth. Christopher, it's wonderful to have you as my guest on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's, it's an honor to actually be here with you. That's wonderful. So let's get cracking. Uh, I know that one of uh, the things you are particularly interested in in the climate change space is uh, the notion of reduction of carbon emissions. I, I thought we could just start with a very basic question. What are carbon units in the context of reduction of CO2 emissions and climate change? The common metric that is used is what we call uh, one metric ton of CO2 emissions. So that is one metric that is used with regards to emissions. And on the other hand, when we, we, we look at the reverse process, which is sequestration or the absorption of CO2, the metric used is carbon. So one ton of carbon, and um, which confuses people sometimes because when people read about CO2 emissions and they see a number behind it of, of so many metric tons or gigatons or, or, or you know, they, they need to know that the difference, uh, CO2 is 3.6 times heavier than just C because of the molecular combination. So C by itself does not include the two oxygen atoms. And so that molecular weight is missing. So that's the, that's a, that's the short answer. So emissions is measured in CO2 and sequestration is measured in carbon without the O2 and the difference in weight is about 3.66. And so uh, what does, I mean, what does that tell us then about uh, the necessary interventions to strike the right balance in terms of uh, carbon emissions? That's a very good question, because in the, in the narrative, in the public narrative, we keep hearing CO2 emissions, CO2 emissions, and we need to reduce CO2 emissions. But in this whole narrative, there's a very, very important aspect that is missing. And I want to give the analogy of, um, of a bathtub. So let us first of all understand the basics of what is happening. So when we look at what we call anthropogenic CO2 emissions, which means CO2 emissions caused by human activity, okay, we have a certain amount of emissions happening on a yearly basis. So let us look at, for example, okay, what, is, what happens to this amount of emission? About 30% is absorbed by all the forests, 
and vegetation, what we call terrestrial carbon sinks. So 30% is absorbed by that on the entire planet. What happens to the rest? Between 30 and 40% is absorbed by the oceans. Because remember, the oceans make up about 70% of the overall surface of the planet, okay? And then we still have a delta. We still have a rest that is unable to be absorbed by the planet. And that is, is kept in the atmosphere. And that is why we have an increased accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere which is measured in ppm parts per million so to give an idea of where we are today in pre-industrial times the ppm in the atmosphere was measured at about 270 ppm today we are above 420 ppm so that that shows you where we are the united mm. nations a couple of years back about, about a decade back determined that the safe level is 350. Well, we are now at 420. All right, so what this means is that we are emitting more CO2 than the planet is able to absorb, okay? With the, with, with, with the overflow accumulating in the atmosphere. So what does this mean? In a nutshell, we can look at the analogy of a bathtub. You have a bathtub that is overflowing. Somebody left the, the tap on. Now, we have the so-called millennial goals by the United Nations, which says in a nutshell, by the year 2050, we need to reduce our emissions by 50%. And the thinking, most people, I believe, in the audience must have heard is that, you know, if we achieve this by, 50, by 2050, the millennial goals, we shall, be, we shall be out of the woods and we have saved the planet. The answer could not be further from the truth. Why? Let's look at the bathtub. The bathtub is overflowing. Somebody left a tap on. The wise people of the planet come together and say, oh, we have a solution. Between now and 2050, we have to reduce the tap the outflow, the water tap, by 50%. Now, every child that hears the adults come to that conclusion will scratch their heads and say, that's not going to stop the overflow of the bathtub. Why? Because what we need to do is while people are shutting the tap off, somebody has to unclog the drain. So what does this mean? It means that as we are reducing CO2 emissions, that is reducing the water tap into the bathtub, we have to increase the outflow, increase the drain, which is increase the absorption capacity on the planet. And once the absorption equals the emission, at that point, we have stopped the overflow. At that point, we have achieved what is known as carbon neutrality. So hmm. again, let's just remember the numbers. So remember we said that 30% is absorbed by the terrestrial carbon sinks, all the forests and plants on the entire planet. So by, if we achieve a reduction of 50, 
we still only have 30 that is absorbed, which means 20 is still going into the ocean. We, so we have not accomplished anything because the oceans are not supposed to be absorbing this amount of CO2. And I can later explain what the significance of that is as far as what, you know, what's happening in the oceans. So what this means is that if we want to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050, we have to increase the absorption capacity on the planet from 30 to 50. The only way you can do that efficiently and scientifically verified is by increasing the terrestrial carbon sequestration capacity on the planet. So in short, we need to increase the terrestrial carbon sinks by 60%, which goes from 30 up to 50, okay? So if we can do that and at the same time reduce by 50% the emissions, we, we would then achieve a carbon neutrality. At that point, the bathtub stops the overflow. And that part of the narrative is missing. This is what the majority of the political class worldwide do not understand. And I don't really blame them because it's the scientific community that has not communicated that in an efficient, uh, proper way. But this in, in, in itself is, is a snapshot of the issue. Hmm. So you have set a mouthful. I'm going to try and follow through on a couple of issues, but I think it, it was essential for you to paint that picture for lay persons like myself. So uh, basically this deficit in terms of uh, the capacity of what you call terrestrial carbon sinks, how in simple terms can we increase that absorption capacity since from what you explain, that is the answer and that is the way that we're gonna achieve the carbon neutrality that uh, so far eludes uh, our policymakers. In a very simplistic way, we have to we have to increase our what we call natural carbon sinks. That is our forests. We have to first of all protect them so they do not continue to be shrunken. We have to protect our wetlands. These are very powerful carbon sinks with a, with a high amount of carbon sequestration capacity. We also have to look at reforestation and restoration of the land. And so what this means is that we may also have to look at the way we are using land. So land usage becomes critical. The importance is the, also to recognize that carbon sequestration capacity is also linked to the health of the soil. So as the plants absorb CO2, carbon, a lot of it is transferred into the soil. And the soil can only hold what it can, what it can, what it can sequester. And today we know and we understand that the health of the soil is directly linked to the absorption capacity of the soil. So in a nutshell, the more biodiverse, the more healthy the soil is, the more organic carbon it can hold. And mm. when we take that into effect, then it starts to indicate that we also have to look at our conventional 
practices of agriculture. So there's agriculture that has a restorative effect on the soil, on the land, and there's agricultural processes that do the reverse. And so these are, in a nutshell, the what we need to look at and that needs, needs to actually be addressed. Hmm. You, you've spoken about um, land and other resources that are on land, but you did also mention that the oceans themselves have the capacity to absorb. Uh, what is it that can be done, if anything, to either increase or, for that matter, stabilize the oceanic absorption capacity for carbon dioxide? The, again, this is, this is um, an area that we need, to, we need to understand. So yes, there are people out there that say, you know, what is the problem? We need to increase the absorption capacity of the ocean. Yes, that can be done. However, what is the net effect? The net effect is, is, is the following. Um, we are witnessing an increased concentration of, of CO2 in the ocean. And that has the effect of acidification of the ocean. In other words, the pH factor is going down and we're measuring that. So the oceans are becoming, uh, are becoming acidic. Now, what does that mean? What this means is that we are already noticing increased coral bleaching. Coral bleaching, again, in the conventional media, is being attributed to what they say an increase in water temperature. That is scientifically incorrect. The coral bleaching is being caused by the increased acidification of the ocean. So the increased acidification is killing the uh, corals. So what we are having here is the destruction of the oceanic um, oasises in the form of the coral reefs, which will now have a huge impact on the, on the life chain. This is where it becomes dramatic. This is why any solution that, that is based on or counting on increased CO2 absorption of the ocean with the result of the oceans increasing the acidification is a problem, which hmm. needs to be very carefully looked at. So basically what you're saying then, uh, Christopher, is that though theoretically uh, it may be possible to increase the ocean's capacity to absorb, it is undesirable because it has unintended consequences that are even dire in terms of the life forms in the ocean. So, so really we are only left with, uh, as you said, increasing the capacity on land through the land itself, forestry and wetlands. So here's my question then. When we look at that as the only plausible solution with limited uh, adverse effects, where in the world do we have the potential to increase that capacity geographically? 
in many ways, the, we have great opportunities in Africa from that point of view. We, in Africa, we have you know, basically a huge landmass. And in so many ways, we have the opportunity now to, um, to, um, to effectively mirror what we have all experienced in the last 20, 25 years. In Africa, we were able to leapfrog, technologically speaking, in, uh, in, the telecom, in the telecom area. We were able to go from no landlines uh, to cell phones. So we were able to leapfrog a whole generational uh, uh, part of the technology. And I, am, I, am, I strictly believe that we have a similar opportunity in front of us today whereby by really going back to basics and looking at our one, our traditional ways of land usage and looking at how that fits into the industrial age, into today's age, how can we now come up with an optimized solution, optimized modus operandi of food production and also protection of the soil? Many parts of Africa, due to climate change, et cetera, are suffering of erosion. Erosion meaning that the increased rain is washing away topsoil because the topsoil has been weakened in its structure by the removing of forests. Plants that have roots hold and secure the, the topsoil. Remove those plants and this, the topsoil has no protection. There's no structural integrity of the soil. And so if we go back to, to basics, we can come up with an optimized modus operandi of land utilization that meets food production, that meets increased carbon sequestration capacity, and at the same time protects the biodiversity of what is above as well as what is below the soil, inside the soil. Biodiversity in the soil, as, as we said before, increases the capacity to hold and, and sequester carbon. So, one simple opportunity right in front of our noses, in front of our eyes right now, as an opportunity at the same time as a challenge that incorporates all this, is the Green Belt of Africa initiative. Creating a green belt to resist the increased desertification of, of, the, of the Sahara from Senegal right across to Djibouti. Listening to you, my impression is that you think uh, Africa and Africa's land mass could potentially contribute significantly. What of uh, Latin America, the Amazon? What of uh, Asia, the forests in Indonesia and so forth, and China's forests, albeit in the temperate climate? Uh, do you not see this as part of this solution? Absolutely. Right now, according to the IPCC reports and all scientific measurements, in a nutshell, 70%, 70% of terrestrial carbon absorption occurs in what we call the tropical regions of the planet. And 30% is in the so-called temperate regions of the planet. The temperate regions, you, you can break that down into 10% is in the lower lower hemisphere and 20% is in the, in the northern hemisphere, together that makes your, your 30. But the bulk of carbon sequestration 
through natural uh, terrestrial carbon sinks occurs in the tropical region. And this by default includes South America, Southeast Asia, and everything else in the belt. So, and, and also large parts of Asia, including India, right? So, and Northern Australia. So the, 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 the potential is huge. And by the time we look at that, then we are really talking about um, a reset of our notion of land utilization. And that's where Africa can take a lead. Hmm. So uh, two things. So Africa uh, can lead, uh, but you are speaking really in terms of geography, but leadership requires more than just uh, geography. How well do you think Africa's policymakers and leaders understand the continent's not only value proposition to the whole world uh, in terms of uh, achieving the uh, Paris Agreement goals, but also how well they understand their strategic positioning in terms of negotiating with the rest of the world as we consider uh, this roadmap towards uh, reduction of carbon emission. It, is, 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 is all of that understood? Is all of that been put on the table as part of our, our negotiations with our Northern partners? I wish I could, I, could, I could answer you with a very positive yes and a big smile on my face. I wish I could do that. Unfortunately, I cannot. Our political leaders clearly do not see that when I'm, when I, with exceptions of, of a, a small minority, okay? So this is an uphill battle. We need to get our political leaders to understand this. We need to get our political leaders to appreciate that. We have to get our political leaders to understand that they cannot get up as a, as, as a, as a country, one of 54 on a fantastically huge continent and expect that they have an impact in any negotiations as a 54th part of a whole doesn't work. It is clear that the African political leadership has to come together and arrive at a consensus. They have to come together and arrive at a strategy. They have to come together and arrive at a, at a modus operandi and be able to negotiate and put that out as a statement as an African collective. And at that point, you start having leverage. Another way of looking at this, uh, Christopher, I think, is to say, fine, there is the negotiation and tactical aspects of negotiating with the rest of the world. But there is also the fact that uh, assuming the numbers you put out uh, in terms of the uh, equatorial forests and others' contribution to the solution are correct, what it means is that the countries and the regions in this geographic space can potentially literally save the world. Am I correct? And if so, what do they gain for saving the world, uh, especially from saving the world in the North that from what I understand from my previous interviews with others on this uh, series, are the major culprits in the carbon emission space. 
how can these regions benefit and be compensated fairly for saving the world, assuming we get there? That's a very good question. So we have a situation where the culprits, as you mentioned, are predominantly in the global north. And um, there are different statistics out there, but in a nutshell, you have, if you, if you look at the G7 uh, countries in, in, a, in, a, in a simplistic way, the G7 countries, G8, if you want to call it, in, include Russia, um, they, they contribute roughly 80% of the overall emissions in the world, 80%, okay? Now, coming back to carbon emissions and the carbon trade, which you, you, you just were hinting at, the global carbon trade is, is, is estimated at over 250 to $300 billion a year. That is, people are buying and selling carbon credits and carbon certificates. Um, so there's, there's an exchange mechanism there. Without going too much into details, but let's just keep that figure in mind. And remember what I said before, that 70% of terrestrial carbon sequestration happens in the tropical region. So by default, one could assume that out of the 250, $300 billion a year in so-called carbon trade, 70% is represented in the tropical region or is flowing into the tropical regions of the world. Well, the truth is less than 1% of that amount flows into the tropical region. At which point you ask okay. yourself, yeah, sorry. No, no, I, I wanted to interject because I want you to stay with that explain to the listeners how does that happen because the commodity from what you're saying is in these regions but somehow the value of the market sits elsewhere can you just explain how does that happen how that happens is is is, is it's quite amazing when you really sit down and you look at it but and there's a lot of details involved but in a high level simplistic way I want to, first of all, the creation of a carbon credit. There are very imaginative, creative ways people are using to create these pieces of paper, which are then sold. One example, for example, is somebody puts up a wind farm and says, um, um, I am producing or, or, you know, I am producing uh, 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 2000 megawatts of um, electricity. And somebody comes and says, do you know that if you were using a coal power plant from the Ukraine, you would be, and you were producing this amount of electricity, you're producing a lot of CO2 emissions. Now, the fact that you are not producing these emissions, we can now create um, certificates based on what they call emission avoidance. And so you just come up with a formula, create your, you know, come up with and say, okay, we've avoided 50,000 tons of CO2 emissions based on an imaginary uh, coal power plant. We issue the credits and we sell it to another company who uses that same paper to claim that th their emissions have been absorbed. This hyperbole is used in the Northern Hemisphere to create a trading mechanism and then they use these 
situation to claim that they are green, that they have green policies, that they have done this and they have done that. But the fact is that the region, the tropical regions that are the ones literally absorbing the CO2 have been elegantly uh, sidelined. Now, there's one last thing I want to also mention here, which is in the Paris Agreement, there's something called the Clause of Additionality, which is a very fancy name. And what they say here is that all the existing carbon sinks that existed prior to the Paris Agreement are excluded from being monetized, the carbon absorption capacity. So they are they're effectively excluded from the carbon trade. So the forests in the Congo, the forests in the Amazons, the, 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 the forests in uh, Borneo, according to the Paris Agreement, they cannot, you can, they cannot be used to, to, to monetize carbon absorption. But if somebody in Sweden plants a couple of trees in the parking lot of Ikea, hmm, those trees in the parking lot the carbon absorption can be measured, assessed, and then monetized. They can create carbon credits and sell it to IKEA. But the, mm. uh, the person who owns the forest in the Amazon is excluded from being able to monetize carbon sequestration. So the only way they have to monetize the forest is to cut the trees and sell it to IKEA. And IKEA then... So this is how we end up with less than 1% in the tropical regions. This is what's happening. Okay, so I, I, you've said a mouthful and I, I do think you gotta uh, slow down for our listeners because there's a lot here to unpack. So let me try and, and, and explain. So what you are saying is that there is a market there that has been superficially created. And through this market, People that are otherwise not carbon neutral can suddenly declare themselves carbon neutral by exactly. simply claiming to have undertaken an activity which somebody values and equates it to carbon neutrality. It is 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 basically it's 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 fair game. Uh, do I understand you correctly? And if so, what's that got to do with cleaning the air? Because my, my understanding was that our quest is to read the environment of excess uh, carbon dioxide. So when we trade this piece of paper, how does that equate to cleaning the air, which is an environmental and not a, a if you wish, a trading platform. How, how do we reconcile the two, Christopher? You can't. That's the that's the that's the short answer. The the general carbon trading and the whole mechanism that they have. The fact that two hundred fifty to three hundred billion dollars changes hands in the northern hemisphere has absolutely no impact on the cleaning of the of the environment. And the IPCC report is very is crystal clear on this. Since the Paris Agreement in 2015, we've had six years now, we would have expected that there would have been a noticeable change in the data for between 2015 and 2021 with regards to the increased accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere. Fact is, 
This is a scientific report, and the IPCC report is very clear on that. There has been no impact, no improvement in the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere, in spite of the fact that they have this green uh, certificate, climate you know, trading certificates and credits and all that. Zero impact. It's a charade to, to, to call a spade a spade. And, and who regulates this? I mean, if there is 250 billion uh, being exchanged per year, is it subject to any regulation? How do the traders therefore legitimately call themselves uh, carbon traders when there is no real, uh, if you wish, you know, sequestration of carbon uh, by the people who benefit from uh, selling these units? Well, let me, let me give an indication of, of how this is effectively the equivalent of the wild, wild west. At the signing of the Paris Agreement, it, it, there was a compromise. You had 196 countries that got together to sign a piece of paper. So, there, so that wasn't easy. There was a compromise. The compromise reached was, you know what? Every, every country can determine by itself how to measure CO2 emissions and how to measure CO2 sequestration. So by at the signing of the Paris Agreement, there was literally 196 different ways of measuring emissions and sequestration. Today we have about, so at, so at that point, um, the, the, the Paris Agreement basically says, okay, if anybody has a way of measuring and you think it's a good idea, um, you can share that measurement uh, uh, technique and register it. So all sorts of interest groups got together and they came up with ways of measuring that is in accordance with the interest that they have. And so today we have about six major metrics out there. And the fact that you have six parallel metrics out there is proof in itself that none of them is based on science. Because if any one of them were based on science, it would render the others um, not important. So even today, as we speak, the European Union has no agreed norm how to measure CO2 emissions or CO2 sequestration. So the Portuguese mm -hmm. have a different way of measuring than the Germans and the, and the Swedes and the Austrians and the Italians. Everyone has a different way of measuring it. Wow. So really, entrepreneurship has got the better of us here, it seems. And uh, the uh, problems of uh, climate change have, for all intents and purposes, then taken uh, a backseat uh, in, in, in this trading. Let me ask you something else. So let us assume that uh, I have a great big forest in my backyard and somebody says, for your forest, I've valued it and uh, I am not carbon neutral and but want to move the needle and I'll give you so much money uh, for your forest. And I say, yeah, the price is right. Give me a little money. You now are carbon neutral. This, this uh, once you purchase this, this carbon unit, is their value permanent? In other words, once you say, I have assessed my contribution to emissions is X. I have subsequently purchased units Y. I'm now neutral. Is that a permanent state of affairs or 
uh, do you then come back at a later stage? Uh, does it expire in other words? I think we, we have to understand the aspect of what is really carbon neutrality. Let us, let us um, make a simplistic example. You live in a community, okay? The community produces waste, call it municipal waste. And they produce 100 tons of municipal waste. You have a group of people in the community that go around and they are, uh, they are collecting 30 tons of this waste. Those are the carbon sinks. Those are the countries and regions that are literally absorbing the carbon sinks, the, the, the carbon emission, okay? So they are collecting every year 30% of the municipal waste, but they're not getting paid. It's not even recognized that it is being, that, that this is what they're absorbing. And of course, 70% is left accumulating there at the, at the, at the detriment of the, of, of the common good. Now, you have people that are saying, okay, I am going to pay, I'm going to, if the waste that I have, I'm gonna put it out there and I will give it to the, I'll, I will, I'll give it to these people who are co collecting the waste and I'm going to pay them for it. Mm. Now, the fact that my waste has been collected and been and, and absorbed by, the, by these service providers, can I now say that I, have, I, am, I am waste neutral? You can, what you can say is that you have accounted for a proper absorption and you, you have paid for the absorption of your waste. Now, if the 70% that have not accounted for the waste collection, if they are now fined for polluting the environment, at which point they, they have to absorb that cost, then they may have to think twice about, hmm, should I now not also pay for my waste to be collected? And if I pay, if, if the price to collect my waste is higher, or rather, if the price to collect my waste is lower than the fine that I have to pay for leaving my waste unaccounted for, then there is an incentive to put my waste in such a way that it will be picked up. And at the same time, it gives the people who are picking up the waste finally an incentive to increase the capacity of picking up the waste. And as long as these people who are collecting the waste are not compensated or even recognized, of course they, will, they, will, they, are, they don't have an incentive to pick up the waste. This is in, in a nutshell what, it, what is happening. Mm. I have to ask you a last question because <clears throat> uh, you indicated that of the $250 billion per year of a carbon trading market, only 1% of that value accrues to the tropical regions, in part because uh, the Paris Agreement excluded uh, these areas of the world uh, for carbon trading. What was the reason? Was the reason that these are nature's gift and that they are nobody's creation? What was the rationale for saying that uh, these regions cannot trade 
carbon units based on these natural uh, land masses and forests. What they did was a very clever argument. They said, that's why it is call, it's called the clause of additionality. So they said, you know, we want to increase the forests. We want to increase carbon sinks. And so we will give a financial incentive um, for people to plant trees. And, um, you know, so if you, if you can prove that your project or whatever it is you're doing is an increase compared to what was in existence in um, 2015, then you can participate and you get a financial reward. So that was the argument. But the fact is that by so doing, you have not recognized or, or giving the possibility of a financial reward for those who are already doing the job. There are forests out there that have been there for six, 700 years. And so you just exclude them. So you take them for granted. And so while some people may be planting a couple of trees, obviously, I think everybody will very quickly see that we're losing more forests than, than trees are being planted because you know, you've, you've excluded that. So it was a clever argument that was used to effectively wipe away the need to give any financial compensation to those who are actually do, you know, collecting the municipal waste now. That's extraordinary. Well, I think that is a good note to close the conversation. Suffice to say that uh, there's a huge amount yet to be unpacked. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome, Sheila. And I wish you all the very best and my best wishes also to the listeners.